pray for us. We'll jump into the scriptures together. Let me pray. Father, we need you. Um, we don't want to study a passage like it's literature. We don't want to uh, just hear a speech that I would give. We want you to meet with us. And so we invite you into this moment. We invite you into our lives. Remove the distractions, anything we might be thinking about, car trouble, getting the kids, the fight we had on the way in here, whatever it is, and speak to our hearts in this moment. We just sang about your love, and uh, you love us in a way we have never experienced from any person. And help us to know you as Father. Help us to know you as a Father who cares for us so much uh, that you would rebuke us and that you'd show us the right path and that you'd guide us and you'd love us and you'd take our burdens from us and all the things that need to happen in the lives of those that are represented that are here today. God, I pray you'd do just that, please. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Like I mentioned, we're continuing in our series called A Journey to the Cross. We're in Mark chapter 11. We'll start in verse 27 in just a moment. But when you look at that passage, what you'll see is the theme is really clear. It's about authority. It's about Jesus' authority. And so today, the title of the message is Resisting the Authority of Jesus. And before you check out and think, well, I don't do that, I'm a good Christian, let me just remind you that resisting authority is a part of every part of our culture. Uh, For those of you who have little kids, uh, you know that you've told your kids to go to bed, and unless you have a kid that I have never met before, they go, "Uh, no, 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 here's why, I need a drink of water, and they fall, eventually it's a tantrum on the floor, that's resisting authority. That's the very beginning signs of it. It can go all the way till America's most wanted, you know, people that are running from the police and resisting arrest. In fact, as I was thinking about this message, I ended up talking to a friend of mine in our our congregation. He's been a member of our church for a while. His name's Archie Massey. He's a police officer in Durham. And I remembered a story that he had told me uh, several years ago. And I said, Archie, I was thinking about sharing this story. Is that okay? He's like, oh, yeah, you can tell any criminal story. (laughs) He's like, I don't have HIPAA laws. And so I was like, all right, I just wanted to to make sure. And, uh, And I said, tell me if the details are right. And I couldn't remember, I didn't want to mess it up and exaggerate things, but he was telling me about this guy that was breaking into houses in Durham, and they had been trying to catch him for like six months. And he wasn't just a robber, and he said, but he wouldn't steal TVs or computers, he'd steal money and jewelry. But they knew he was dangerous because he said it was like the, make, the way that Archie said it, and I don't know a lot about serial killers, but he said it was like the making of a serial killer. This guy would just mess with people. And so he'd break into their house. I think the first time he told me the story, he told me about eating some of their food in one house. I know that yesterday when we were talking, he said in one home he rearranged their furniture to let them know that he was there. He left a note for one family. I was in your house, kind of note. He found the key to a house, stuck it in the person's front door. So then you're like, does he still have a key? You know, you're wondering. Uh, Took one guy's car and drove it down the street. Didn't steal his car, just moved it to let him know that he could. And he said, one time, a month before the story that I'm going to share with you in just a moment, the police were chasing this guy. He had broken into a house. They got a call. They, you know, they knew the area where he was breaking into houses at. And they were chasing him. They got out of their cars and started to pursue him on foot. The guy circled back around, went to the police cars, opened up all of the doors of the police cars just to let him know that he had been there before he got away. So this guy had some control issues. And he's stealing uh, from these houses. And he said, I said, well, tell me about that one night that you were telling me about chasing this guy before. And I said, okay, Scott, this is what happens when you're asleep at 2 a.m. This is what's going on in your city, is what Archie said to me. It made me feel real warm and fuzzy, by the way. (laughs) And he said, we knew this guy. We knew the area that he was going to be in. We were patrolling this area. We got a call about a robbery. We expected that it was him, and we saw him. And I said, How'd you, tell me about chasing him. He said, well, I was on the outside of this SUV, and I was standing on the rail. They started driving. I was like, this is awesome, Archie. It's like a movie. I'm all pumped about it. He said, we start chasing this guy, we go and he starts running into the woods. And I remember the first time years ago when he told me the story, I said, why don't you fire like a warning shot and then he'll just stop. And he's like, Scott, that's the movies. And I'm like, yeah, I know. 
that's all I know. <laughs> so why don't you do it? So you can't just shoot at people and just tell me all the rules and the rules aren't as fun as the movies. But at any rate, he says, <laughs> says, we're chasing this guy into the woods. He said, I'm about 25, 30 feet behind him and we're going. He said, but when you're running through the woods, you've got to be careful. And now my mindset, just as a civilian, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you might trip on a stick. He goes, the guy could hide and flank you. I'm like, I didn't even think of that. But I'm tracking this guy through the woods about 25, 30 feet behind him. We're going. And then all of a sudden, he just disappears. Two o'clock in the morning. It's raining outside. It's dark. And he's just gone. And he said, so we started looking for him. We couldn't find him. All night, they looked. They didn't, they didn't find him. Next morning, this woman calls in a missing person report on her husband. Same area. They thought this might be the guy. And they went out there with cadaver dogs. And it took about 10 minutes. They found his body. What had happened was, the guy was running, he fell into a creek because it was raining. There was a current that went through there. Archie said he had about 20 pounds of coins in his pockets and he got trapped underneath a log, he drowned. And I thought, here's a guy that would rather die than submit to authority. He could have surrendered, here's the police, they got, all right, they caught me, I was doing what was wrong, I knew what I was doing was wrong, here I am, but he'd rather die than stop resisting authority. And I think about y'all and I think, hey, that, I, there's probably no one here who's running from the police. If there is, I don't know your story. We have prayer counselors after the service. They'd love to hear your story and uh, introduce you to Archie. (laughs) (laughs) And probably a lot of you would say that you're not even running from God. But there was a study that was done, the most comprehensive study that's ever done, about resisting authority. And I share statistics with you periodically, you know, I'll tell you, you know, this percentage of people give to a church, this percentage of people serve, this percentage, you know, share the gospel throughout the week, whatever it is. I don't know that I've ever seen a a survey before come back with 100% of respondents do the same thing. Like 10 out of 10 people, by the way, resist authority. The findings of the study are in the back of the New Testament. It's a book called Romans. It says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because that's what sin is. It's resistance to the authority of God in our lives. Now, some of you will hear that and be like, well, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. I'm not resisting anymore. Well, here's the problem, though. See, resistance to authority can be incredibly deceptive, and some of us do it, and we don't even realize we're doing it. And so today, the question I want you to ask yourself as we jump into Mark chapter 11 is this simple question is this, how do I know if this is me? How do I know if I'm resisting the authority of Jesus? And I think we're going to see a few things in the passage that, that could be true of our lives. Too. Even though that we know we've professed the profession of faith for a believer, Jesus is Lord. That's the first profession of faith. We know that He sends us out with His sending words All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and it's not therefore I give it to you. It's now go, obey me. But a lot of times we don't. So, how do we know if we're not? If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 11, I'm going to read uh, the first section, it'll be verses 27 through 33, and then just at the end of the message, I'm going to read a story that Jesus tells in verses 1 through 12, and if you're, you're new today or you haven't been with us through this series, uh, what's been happening here, we're doing this journey to the cross, we're looking at the last week of the life of Jesus. Some people think that the book of Mark, it's the, the first 10 chapters or an introduction to this last week in the life of Jesus that some people call the Passion Week. And so on Sunday what happened, and that's Mark chapter 11 and verse 1, is that it's what oftentimes Christians call the triumphal entry. But we saw that it wasn't that triumphal. Jesus didn't come on a war horse. He came on a donkey. He didn't come with all of his captives to put on display like war trophies. He came to set captives free. And so the very people that are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Some of them in days will chant crucify him. One of them will betray him with a kiss. And Jesus comes in and it's a celebration. And we saw that Jesus' journey to the cross is a journey to lasting, not just joy, not just a joyous moment, but to lasting joy. That Jesus died for the joy set before him, endured the shame of the cross. 
And then in, in verse 12, things transition. He curses this fig tree. And it's like, what is that about? And it's really an image, a picture, an object lesson of what he's going to do in the temple. And he goes into the temple and he flips over the tables. He confronts empty religion and he shows what an authentic relationship is. And we saw his journey to the cross was a journey to an authentic relationship. And he, he doesn't want the empty religion. He doesn't want the leaves with no figs. There's no fruit in your life. And so he's going for something more than that. But when he did that, he was really confronting the authority because who's in charge of that empty religion? Well, that was Monday. Now we're going to be in Tuesday. And when we start reading in verse 27, the guys he's going to come into contact with, they're in the temple. Seeing that we saw yesterday, they're cleaning up the mess from him throwing the tables over. And these are the leaders, the ones that are in charge of the empty religion. Now, here's one of the things I love about Jesus. He is the man, by the way. He's God, but he's also fully man, so I can say he's the man. He turns the tables in the temple over. If I was one of his disciples, I'd be like, let's take a couple days off from the temple. Okay, let's not go back there. Jesus comes back the next day, and he gets confronted. Look at it. In Mark chapter 11, and verse 27, they arrived again, the 12 and Jesus, arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, so he goes back to the temple, the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. That's a group that makes up what's known as the Sanhedrin. They were the power brokers of Jesus' day. They had the authority. And then if you wonder if this passage is about authority, look at how many times the word is said. Verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And they asked a second question. And who gave you authority to do this? What's your, what is your authority? What's the source of your authority? Jesus replied, let me answer your question with a question, which I love when Jesus does that. He said, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And when he says John's baptism, he doesn't just mean when he's actually dunking people under the water. John preached a message, repent, turn from your sins. And he was confronting people and their sinfulness and their empty religion and all those things. He was the forerunner for Jesus. He says about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus came from God. Their ministries were connected. And when people were being baptized, they were identifying with the message that, Jesus, that John the Baptist was preaching. And he says, was it from heaven, which means from God, or was it from men, which is derogatory? He's saying, it's going to fail. He says again, tell me. And so twice Jesus says, answer me this. Then he says, tell me. Tell me who's got authority here in this passage. Verse 31, they huddle up. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, and then Mark gives us this parenthetical commentary. They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So apparently they didn't. And if they did, they'd have probably intervened when he was about to get his head chopped off. So they answer Jesus. They think they've got it figured out. We don't know. I don't know. That didn't work. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And so here in this encounter, you've got two authorities. Jesus' authority is pretty clear. He's walked on water. He's fed thousands. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. And here he is. He comes and he flips these tables over in the temple, which really angers the power brokers of his day because the Sanhedrin, that group of the teachers of the law and the elders and the chief priests, they make up this group that has political authority. They've got authority over the spiritual things that happen. They believe they're the direct line from God to the people. And they're coming, they're mad that you've just confronted our authority, Jesus, so we're asking you this question. Now, here's what you need to know about this question they're asking. It's not a genuine question. The day before, these guys weren't getting together and going, wow, this guy has a lot of authority. Maybe we should submit to it. Let's just ask him where his authority comes from. If he says from God, then we'll bow down and we'll submit to it. He's already said it's from God. John the Baptist has said it's from God. He's demonstrated it's from God. They know the answer. They're trying to trap him. 
If he answers based on religious credentials, Jesus doesn't have any. And so they think they've got him trapped. If he says anything from earthly perspective, the people will lose, he'll lose his influence with the people because they'll realize he didn't get a degree. He doesn't have the great teachers ahead of him. He doesn't have any of those things that we look at in the world. But if he says from heaven, then we can accuse him of claiming to be God himself, of coming from God and being God's spokesperson. And everybody knows that we're God's spokesperson. And so then we can kill him. And then Jesus asks the question, turns the tables on them, and what he's really doing is getting at their hearts. And that's what I believe that we see when we look at the passage, is their hearts. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do our heart, are they like that? Because what we see are some signs. They're not necessarily the cause of rebellion against God, but they're signs that we are rebelling against God. And the first sign that we see is a refusal to release control. There's a refusal to release control in our lives and areas of our lives and various areas of our spiritual journeys and our personal lives and our financial lives and our time with our families, with our relationships, all, whatever part of your life you want to talk about, all of it. If we refuse to release control, it's a sign, it's a symptom that we're actually rebelling against the authority of Jesus in our life. For these guys, it was clear. Uh, everything they're doing is to try and preserve their position, to try and preserve their power, to try and preserve their control. From when Jesus overturns the tables, they wanted to arrest them right then. Go back in your Bibles in chapter 11 and verse 18. But they don't. And then they want to get them here. Now we got a plan. Now we can work it out so that we can preserve control, keep the people at peace, and we can have our control. They want to have control. And I was thinking about us this week and talking about this. And I think some of you here, you, natu- you know you have control issues. And some of you are, you know, it's, everything's got to be perfect. It's got to be a certain way. And, and you chalk it up to, like, personality. Like, you're an A-type personality. I remember when I was a kid, I would tuck my shirt, my T-shirts into my shorts. I was a nerd. And uh, <laughs> had to have it a certain way. It's got to be a certain way. You've got to do things a certain way. And you've got to have all this stuff lined up. And you call it particular or lots of other things that you may want to call it. And we think, well, that's just a personality thing. But some of you are like, I got my shirt untucked. I'm cool on this point. <laughs> Do you realize how much control influences just our culture? Like just the fact that you live during this time, what a big deal culture, what that control is in our culture. And I started to think to myself, what if we went back, and so it's the Passover time, right? There's like 2.7 million people that are at the temple right now, and I described the scene last week and what it was like, and they're, you know, bartering over animals, they're going to slaughter these animals and changing the money. And you went back and started talking to those people. What if we could travel back in time and start talking to them, and they ask us questions about our lives? And we've got things that show how much we control just every part of our life. Like air conditioning. Can you imagine telling someone 2,000 years ago, so do you control the temperature of your air? Oh, of course we do. Yes, we do. In our house, in our cars, and I use it. I'm not condemning air conditioning. I just want you to see what a normal part of our lives that control is. We control everything. Do you know they make beds now that you can have firm on one side, soft on the other side? Talk about, that's a lot of, that's, I'm not against it. I'm not saying you need to sell your Tempur-Pedic, okay? So don't hear the wrong message here. I just want you to see how we do this. Young people now that are having babies, you say, when are you having your baby? I'm having my baby on Wednesday at 10. <laughs> Did anyone tell the baby? <laughs> Can you imagine telling someone 2,000 years ago that you scheduled the birth of your child? We have a lot of control issues. Now put that with, how is there not attention? You can't even be a Christian unless you release control. The first confession of faith is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means he's in control, by the way. And we've got a Savior who says, all authority that's ever existed anywhere in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But then 
many times, and you think about it, we go through the book of Mark. How many times have I referred to the prayer that Jesus himself prays in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. Now, I just want you to think about your own prayer life. What did you pray about this week? And just think through the things that you've prayed about. How many of our prayers could be translated, I don't think anyone prayed these words, but could be translated, God, not your will, but my will be done. If you, God, if you just understood how good my plan is, if I could just convince you how awesome this is, you'd bless it and we'd be right on our way. That means we have control issues. And here you've got these guys, that they're doing everything they're doing in the name of God. How many of us use God to run from God? And here they are, they're confronted with a different authority. And the question really for them is, will you, not where did Jesus' authority come from? That's already been clear through the book. Not what his source of authority is. That's actually already clear. Their questions have already been answered. And it seems like Jesus doesn't answer, but implicitly he answers by identifying with John the Baptist. And he answers in the story that he's going to tell that I'll read to you in a little bit. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, he answers their question multiple times. It's already been answered. The real question is, will they submit to this authority? And that's the question for us. And the only way we can do is release control. And so you go back and you think about the situation they're in. And in order to understand this situation, you've got to grasp the intensity of the moment. And so I already told you the scene last week when we were talking about Jesus turning over the tables. He comes in. Remember, there's 2.7 million people there. Josephus said one year they had 255,000 lambs sacrificed. That's a lot of dead animals. And Tim Keller described that the day that Jesus comes into the temple, it's like the stock exchange floor. I'll buy, sell, buy, sell. And it's all the people yelling everywhere with livestock. Just add animals to that. It's craziness. Then Jesus comes in, flips over the tables. Last week I flipped over one table, just to give you an idea of how, what a violent act that is. And I had one friend, a, a lady that goes to our church, semi small group, she came to me and she said, I'm not scared of you, but I was scared. And you think about Jesus, he didn't flip over one table and he didn't warn them that he was about to do it like I did with you. I woke some of you up. <laughs> he just started flipping tables over. Money's flying everywhere. People are up, this is my livelihood. This, was an act, this is sacred. This is my act of worship. And Jesus is stopping it. He's saying, you, stop going through the temple. You're not walking through here anymore. This is all done. And he throws them out. The word is used is for casting out demons. He's violently, get out of here. And then he comes back the next day. And who's there? Go back in your passage of verse 27. Who are these people? There's three different groups of people. But the fact that they come together is significant. It's the chief priest, the elders, and the teachers of the law. Those of you who brought a copy of the Bible, you might want to look back to Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. And if you weren't here when we taught Mark chapter 8, verse 31, let me tell you what happens in that passage of Scripture. Is that Jesus predicts his death. He does it very clearly. He says, what's going to happen is I'm going to be betrayed, handed over to a group of people I'm going to be murdered. It's a divine necessity. I must be murdered. And then I'm going to rise. And so the disciples hear this. And who are the three groups of people that he gets betrayed and handed over to? If you have your Bibles, you look at it in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It's the chief priest, the elders, and the teachers of the law. And so if you're one of the 12 disciples, Jesus has just flipped these tables over the day before. He comes in. Now the power brokers, the Sanhedrin, chief priests, teachers of the law, elders, come to Jesus. If you're one of the disciples, you're thinking to yourself, is this the moment? If you're Peter, you got your hand on your sword going, do I need to cut somebody's ear off? What's going to happen next? And they ask Jesus about his authority. What is this authority? Let me put it in our words. Who do you think you are? What is your source of authority? What do you think you're doing? Messing with our lives. Messing with our power. Messing with our control. 
We are the spiritual leaders. There's a warning here in this passage to any leader, but certainly to church leaders. They're abusing their power. They're claiming to do it in the name of God, and they're serving themselves. They're not serving the people. And Jesus confronts their hearts. They ask this question, and Jesus says, let me ask you a question. John's baptism. Where did it come from? But here's what I want you to notice, verses 31, 32. When they're debating, you see their hearts. Not once does someone say, where did John's baptism come from? They don't want the truth. They're not asking themselves the real questions. They're trying to preserve their power. They're trying to preserve their control. They discussed it, and all they're talking about is the outcome. If we say from heaven, how do we win this argument? Then they'll just ask, why didn't we believe him? But if we say from men, no one asks the question, what's the truth? What is right? What should we do? Maybe that, Jesus is like giving them a second chance here. If you would acknowledge that John's baptism came from heaven, that I am associated with John, that I come from heaven, you could repent right now, you'd be right with God. But instead, they want to preserve their own control. They want to preserve their own power. They're not looking for the truth. And the reality is, it's because it's so hard to release control. And it is hard. I remember when I first, first heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. The good news starts with the bad news. The bad news is we're all sinners. I didn't need somebody to convince me of my sin. I knew I was a sinner. But then the person told me that, that God's holy and he's righteous and he's perfect and he, you can't have a relationship with him because of your sin, which is like terrible news. It was depressing to hear this. But then he told me about Jesus coming, Jesus living this perfect life, never sinning, being tempted, dying on the cross, taking the wrath of God for us. And at that moment, I felt like, this is awesome. This is great. Tell me, if I just need to pray for forgiveness, I'll pray for forgiveness, I'd, I'd do it at that moment. But he said, if you trust Jesus as your savior, he becomes your Lord and he takes over your life. I was 18 years old. I didn't know I had control issues at that point. I do and did. But I said, no, no way. I can't ask Jesus to be my savior. And all I knew was I didn't want somebody else in charge of my life. I might not have been doing a good job at it, but I didn't want somebody else doing it. I had control issues. So I said, no. If you've bowed your knee to Jesus, you've released control at least once. At least control over your eternal destiny. It's Romans 10, verse 9. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means he's in control. That's essential. The promise that comes next is based on that. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be rescued from your sin. Then you'll be saved. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've released control of your eternal destiny that he's got that. But then what happens is he begins a good work in us, Philippians 1.6, and he's faithful to continue to do that work. And so he continues taking things out of our hands, continues sometimes prying things out of our hands. And that's difficult. But here's, here, don't miss this. Know this. It is impossible to obey Jesus without releasing control. You can't obey Jesus with a closed fist. It is impossible to obey Jesus without releasing control. And so he's continually asking us to release, release control of your future. What, drop your nets, disciples. Let go of those nets. The job, the family business, your security, your future plans. He, he keeps coming after. He continues to do a good work in us. And he continues calling us to release. Next thing, next thing, next thing. Will you release control? Because Jesus has done everything he needs to do to demonstrate his authority to these guys. Their problem is they don't want to release control. And you can see it all through the book of Mark. In fact, if you go back to Mark, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 22, the people are amazed because he teaches not with incredible insights, not with these great object lessons, not with catchy and pithy sayings, but with authority. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. 
The people were amazed, out of their minds, literally, at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as, (laughs) who's confronting him right now? The teachers of the law, the power brokers. A couple verses later in Mark chapter 1 and verse 27, he's cast out a demon. It says, the people were all so amazed and they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And those of you who were around when we were in Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3, and we did a series of Jesus is stronger. And we saw that he's stronger than disease. Amen? He's stronger than death. Amen? In Mark chapter 5, he raises a little girl who's dead from the dead. So Jesus has power over death. He's got power over disease. He's got power over demons. Mark chapter 5, there's a situation where it says that people can't even restrain this man with chains. He just breaks the chains. Jesus, with the word of his mouth, casts demons out of this guy. He heals leprosy. No one can heal leprosy. He calms the storm. They're terrified of him. They were terrified of the storm. Jesus calms the storm. They're like, who's this? He's got power over the storms. He's got power over disease. He's got power over death. He's got power over every circumstance. In fact, if you, go, if you back up, you do it from a, a Bible scholar perspective. What's happening in the book of Mark is Mark chapter 1, verse 22 is the first time we see his authority mentioned. And then we go to our passage of scripture here and we see authority mentioned. It's what Bible scholars call an inclusio. An inclusio is, it's like an envelope. It's one side, he mentions the topic. And then at the back end, he brackets it, bookends it, closes the envelope, topic, and in between is this theme of authority. And all this stuff that we've seen has been demonstrating his authority. Jesus has done everything he needs to do to answer their question already. His authority is clear. It's from God. He's from God. And it's what he's saying when he says for John the Baptist, John the Baptist, the guy who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he must increase, I must decrease. It's clear. He's done everything he needs to do to demonstrate his authority in the lives of the Sanhedrin. What about for you? You have a story. I have a story. We have different stories. But I bet God's put his power on display in your life. I don't know if you've seen it or recognized it because this is happening so clearly and it's like we read it and go, how do these guys not see this? But they just keep resisting. What else does he have to do? What else do you have to do for you? I was sharing with a, a friend recently just about my life, and we were just talking through some of the issues in my life. And uh, we went back to this past Easter, and some of you live life with me, a part of this church family, and you know that our family went through a difficult time at Easter and family tragedy. And I was talking to him about some things that happened in between that, up until you, many of you know that our friend passed away a few weeks ago unexpectedly and grieving with the, the Moore family. And my friend said to me, he said, I just keep getting this phrase as you're telling all these stories of different stuff that's happened. Some of you know the things in between, some of you don't, but I said, what's the phrase? And he said, God's coming after you. And I gotta be honest with you, I said at that moment, he already has me. Like, I've already surrendered. What does he want? And that's what I said to him. I said, what does he want? And they're like, are you gonna speak through this guy? He's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what he wants. He's coming after you. And, and I'll be candid with you, there's a tension in my life about it because I want him but I'm also scared of him. Why am I scared? Because I bet what he wants is different than what I want. And so it means I have to release control. And what about you? If we won't release control, it's a sign. It's a symptom. It's not really the issue. It's a symptom, though, that you're resisting his authority. But it's not the only sign that we see. We see another sign here from these men in this passage, and it's they refuse to repent of their people-pleasing. 
And that's the second sign that we see in this passage is a refusal to repent of our people-pleasing. In the Bible, people-pleasing is called the fear of man. And we see that they struggle with this big time. There's a theme throughout this passage. In fact, if you go back to last week's passage, he overturns the tables. And in verse 18, they want to kill him then. But it says they're afraid of him. But why they're afraid of him is because of the crowd. It says this, in Mark chapter 11 and verse 18, the chief priest and the teachers of the law, they heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. We want to kill this guy, for they feared him. But why? Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. What they really wanted was the praise of the people. What they, and Jesus was getting it. And then you go to our passage. And in verse 32, I've already read this to you. They're debating about John's an- the answer about John, but they're not really debating the real truth. They're talking about how to come out ahead in this deal. They don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their position. They don't want to lose control. But why? What's it driven by? But if we say for men, then parenthetical statement by Mark in verse 32 of Mark chapter 11. They feared the people. For everyone held that John really was a prophet. And what happens next in this passage is that Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your question. And then he implicitly answers their question by telling them a parable. A parable is a a spiritual story that's made up to teach one spiritual truth. And and he gives us the picture, and we'll read it in just a little bit, but it's really a picture about them. And at the end, they recognize that the parable is about them. But in verse 12, it says this, Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. And so in other words, they knew what they wanted to do, but they were controlled by the opinion of the people. They were people pleasers. And we know throughout the Bible that God condemns people pleasing. It's not safe. Sometimes you think it's not safe to follow God because you see people get their heads cut off for following God. People get sawn, but then they get to be with Jesus. That's the best thing that could possibly happen. But in, in Proverbs, let me give you this proverb. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25, it says this, the fear of man or people pleasing will prove to be a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And here's the real danger with people pleasing, just from my experiences and, and, and wrestling with this in my own life and seeing it in the lives of other people, is that people pleasing, it's prominent in the church. Church is filled with people pleasers. And most people praise them for being good Christians. Because you're often complimented as being kind. You're, you're the one that serves whenever somebody asks you to serve. You're you're probably a good listener. Most people think that you love people, but what they don't know is this is actually a secret sin. It's far different than any of the other idols that we struggle with because our other idols, and by an idol, I don't just mean if you're maybe new to the church, I don't just mean like a golden calf that they worshiped in the Old Testament or like some statue. You see third world countries, we worship the sun god, and they make a statue of the sun, and we all think that's ridiculous, and they're just not intelligent. We all are idol worshipers, and the way that we worship idols is we create things that we bow down to, that we give control to, that we make ultimate in our lives that aren't God. And sometimes it's other people. Sometimes it's lust. Now, if you've got an addiction to pornography, you know that. If you've got an issue with anger and you just, every time it doesn't go your way and you don't have control or whatever, you blow your top, you know that. You might not like it, understand it's a struggle with sin, but you know that it's there. You, jealousy, you know that. Gossip, you know that. You, it's there. It's an identifiable sin. People-pleasing is really hard to see. And it's so deceptive, we can get deceived about the deception of the sin. That we deceive ourselves and we start to believe that we're, we're really good Christians and God knows and But here's what God says. When you're actually people-pleasing, you're stealing his praise, and he will not give his praise to another. And what we see in the scriptures, we get examples of this. You want to see a contrast of people-pleasing and and fear of God? Because fear of God is the answer to the fear of man. 
You see in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles, who they've got the image of being these faulty guys and broken people and all that, but they get told by this group of power brokers, you stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, you decide. Is it right to obey man or God? That's the fear of God over the fear of man. You get another picture in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, there's a guy named Herod. Not Herod from when Jesus is born, but it's another, in that family line. And that, that family's messed up. And then Herod, he becomes the ruler. And he loves the praise of people. And he comes out one day, he gives a speech, State of the Union type address. And it must have been an awesome speech. Because the people respond and say, that's the voice of a God, not a man. But then you look and you see what God does. It says, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. He probably didn't die immediately. He was struck down immediately. Josephus says it took about five days for him to die. He got worms. Ever been to a third world country, you get a parasite? That's worms. He died. He was eaten from the inside. That was God's judgment on his life for people pleasing. Now, if God did that to every people pleaser, I bet the church would change. But the problem is most of us, it's not so evident. And so people think, you're, just a, you're a good person. You're, here's, the, here's what I want you to get. It's not important just what you do. You've got to ask yourself the question, why do I do what I do? Because the people pleaser is told they're kind, is told that they're loving, is told that they're caring, is told they're great listeners for this reason. Because from the person that you have given the control of your life to, which is what people pleasers do, they hand the control over to another person. They don't even know it. They think you're genuinely serving them, and you know you're not. You're serving you. You're doing it so that they tell you that you're kind. You're doing it so that you can receive praise. You're doing it so they'll like you. You're doing it so that they'll think well of you. Maybe you're not even doing it so the person you're serving, but it's so that other people will think, I'm a good Christian. I do these things. I show up at this moment. I serve. I wash the feet. I do the bridge kids. Whatever it is. But you know. Do you know if you're a people pleaser? The Bible says you can't have two masters. In the context, just so that we're fair here, the context is actually talking about money and God in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says that, but it applies in every idolatrous situation. You can't serve other people as if they have control of your life and serve God. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. You'll be devoted to one, you'll despise the other. So how do you know? I want to recommend a book if you wonder, if you struggle with this. It's called um, When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. And the subtitle of the book is uh, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. And I want to read to you just from a, a small section where he asks a bunch of diagnostic questions about the fear of man. It says, facing the fear of man. It's on page 14, 15, 16. He um, says, we replace God with people. Instead of biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear other people. And he asks these questions. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Peer pressure is simply a euphemism for the fear of man. If you experienced it when you were younger, believe me, it is still there. He's a counselor. He sees this all the time. He says, another question, are you overcommitted? Do you find that it is hard to say no, even when wisdom indicates that you should say no? You're a people pleaser. Another euphemism for the fear of man. Do you need something from your spouse? You could say from anyone, because it might be a parent, it might be a peer, it might be a friend, it might be somebody on, on social media. Do you need something from those people? Do you need your spouse to listen to you? Do you need them to respect you? Think carefully here, he says. 
He says, if self-esteem is a critical concern for you, and then he goes on to talk about this is a big deal in the United States. He says, do you feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? People knew the real you. Probably a people pleaser. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you ever lie, especially little white lies? What about cover-ups? Well, you're not technically lying with your mouth. Are you jealous of other people? You are controlled by their, their opinions, their possessions. Do you avoid people? And he talks about why the hermit is actually a people pleaser. And then he, he goes on, he's, he's done all these things, and I skipped some, but he says, have all these descriptions missed the mark? When you compare yourself with other people, do you feel good about yourself? Oh, great, now he's going to tell me it's bad to feel good about myself. No. Listen to what he diagnoses. He says, perhaps the most dangerous form of the fear of man is the successful fear of man. Successful in quotation. Successful fear of man. Such people think they've made it. They have more than other people. They feel good about themselves. But their lives are still defined by what other people have, do, think, rather than God. And so what defines your life? If it's other people, then you know what you've done, and they may not even realize it as you've given them control. And the first issue, the control issue, is that you've taken control from God and you want control. And this issue with the fear of man is that you've handed control over to someone who's not God. People. And they, if they fail, they could just repent in this passage and it would totally change their life stories. Not God's story, their life stories. But they don't. And so then Jesus gives them the third one. And the third one is so obvious, I almost hesitated to make it a point, but the third one is simply this. It's people refuse to obey God's word. We're resisting God's authority when we refuse to obey his word. Now some of you, that might hit you right now. And you know God's been poking at something. He's been pushing you in some area and you keep coming up with a reason, a justification to not listen. That's what these guys have been doing. But they've been doing it in the name of God. And so what I'm going to do for this point, I'm just going to read to you the story that Jesus tells because I think Jesus would do a lot better at it than me. <laughs> and then ask you a couple questions. And so here's the story that Jesus gives. It's a parable. He then began to speak to them in parables. And it's a spiritual truth, a spiritual story, a made-up story that makes a spiritual point. He says, a man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. And so he buys this vineyard, then he does some work. It's like a renovation, like HGTV. He makes this vineyard really nice. It's going to do well. And then it says what he does business-wise. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. And so this would be a typical word picture. In fact, some of these guys in the Sanhedrin, these, these teachers of the law, these guys that are they're business guys that know God's word really well, and so they probably own land. They've probably done this. And the deal is, I buy this land, I fix it up, I own the land, then I hire a manager. It's like owning a franchise. You buy a Chick-fil-A, you buy, you know, budget bonds, you buy some insurance company, Allstate, whatever it is, and you own it, but then you hire somebody else to manage it, and the way that it works is the better they manage it, the more money they make, but you get a cut of the profits. So he goes on. He says, at harvest time, he went away on a journey. He's an absentee owner. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent others, and some of them they beat. Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. And he sent him last of all. Now, if you're a thinking listener, you think to yourself, who sends their son? Like, he's killed these other servants. He beat these other servants. Who sends their son? Some of you probably know the answer. 
He sent him, the son, last of all, saying, they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. They assumed that the owner died. And so if we kill the heir, no one owns the property. We can take possession of the property. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and they killed him. And they threw him out of the vineyard. And then he asked them this question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? And he tells them, he's a very patient owner. He's very gracious. But his patience doesn't last forever. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And here what Jesus does is he tells them a story that's got a twist. And so I don't know if you've read the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, you read this story. There's a guy, David is the greatest king in Israel, but he's got problems too. And he committed sin with a woman named Bathsheba, and he killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, covered it up. And then this buddy comes to him. His name's Nathan. And Nathan wasn't a people pleaser. See, one of the problems with people pleasers in the church is that what happens with Nathan and David can't happen with people pleasers. Is that Nathan comes and he tells David a story, and the story is simply this. There's this guy, he owns a whole bunch of sheep and a whole bunch of lambs, and, and this guest comes, and when you have a guest in that culture, you've got you to feed them, you've got to take care of them. And so this guest comes, but instead of killing one of his own sheep, one of his own lambs, he goes down the street to this guy who only has one little baby ewe lamb that he loves, that he's held in his arm, that he's cherished, and he steals that, and he kills it, and he gives it to the guest, and David burned with anger, and he says, that guy's got to pay four times over. And then Nathan loves David so much, he twists the story. He says, you're the man, David. You assume that you're the victim. You assume that you're the hero. And most of us do that when we listen to a story, don't we? Most of us, when we hear a story, we don't assume we're the bad guys. We assume we're the good guys. Most of you, you, watch, you ever watch a movie and you, it's about the bad guy and all of a sudden you're like cheering for him to get away with a crime and then you think to yourself, what am I doing? I have confession. It's good for our body. Usually we pick, like, we, in the Bible stories, we don't pick Jesus because we're just like, he's Jesus. But we, we're like, we're Peter. We messed up, but we're one of the good guys. What if you're Judas? What if you're one of the Pharisees? These guys that are listening to this story, they're thinking they're the landowner. And then it becomes evident, the landowner is God. Well, maybe we're one of the servants. No, the servants are his prophets. In fact, they're called servants in the Old Testament. And what he's giving them is a story of salvation history. Sent Jeremiah, you beat him. I sent Isaiah, you killed him. And I sent many more prophets. Some of those are the small guys we don't know. Malachi, Micah, you know, Joel. I sent all these other guys. And you either beat them, you killed them, you rejected. When they brought God's word, you refused to listen to it, and you did it in God's name. You're the chief priest, the teachers of the law. The, the, these leaders the elders, and, and you're doing it still, and they know it. And he goes on, he switches the, the word picture from agriculture to architecture. He says, the stone the builders rejected, and he's quoting from, a, from Psalm chapter 118, which is ironic because that's what people were quoting from when they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, the day, day before, on Sunday, a couple days before. He's quoting a different part of it, and he says, the stone the builders rejected, they're the builder, has become the capstone, the most important stone. The Lord has done this. Even when you rebel, God overrules and he accomplishes his plan. He doesn't need you, but he's given him an opportunity. And this is marvelous in our eyes. And then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew. So give him some credit. Normally non-believers don't get parables. They knew, they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and they went away. They had their reasons, but they rejected God's word. And so I just ask you this. We hear that story of Archie pursuing that guy who's clearly rebelling against authority. He's got control issues. He's doing his own thing. And we think, man, that would never, what if you're the man? 
What if you're the one in that story? And you're actually rebelling against God. It's the kind of person who would hear this and be like, I do have control issues. I need to work on that. And you don't really do anything about God, about what God has spoken to your heart today. I'm a people pleaser, but you know, the Lord, you'll have to work that out. You don't do. We hear God's word, but we don't do anything about it. What do you do? Well, you start with repentance. You start with releasing the control. You start with realizing you're actually disobeying God's word. And I don't want that for any of you. And so I'm going to pray. Ask God to speak to our hearts. But you're ultimately responsible with what you do with this message. So let me pray for us. Father, I come before you and, and on behalf of our church, if we have sinned as a church as a whole, God, reveal that to us. Don't let us be like these arrogant leaders that think that they've got it all figured out and, and God, change us and redirect us. And God, if we sin individually, can, we confess our sin to you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that need to confess sin, repent, turn from people-pleasing, release control to you, maybe another jealousy or pornography, whatever it is, that they would release it to you. God, I pray that you'd speak into our hearts. I pray as we sing these songs, we'd evaluate, are you truly Lord? Are you? I mean, we say that you're Lord. We confess you as Lord. Are you in control of our lives? And God, I pray if there's any here that don't know you as Savior, they would trust your son Jesus as Savior today. And if that's you, if I'm, if I'm praying and you're like, yeah, I need to trust Jesus as Savior, we've got some prayer counselors. They'll be, while we're singing the songs, the prayer counselors, you go ahead and get up and you go back to the back corners of the room. They'll be in the back corners of the room. And Father, I just thank you that you meet with us, that you care about us, that you're patient with us, that you give us your word, that you speak to us by your spirit, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.